Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sustaining Open Source Design, a podcast where you talk about the confluence of open source and design and how to keep them going and get them more intermingled with each other. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We have no other panelists, it's just me. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Littauer. Hello Richard Littauer. And our guest today is Ashlyn Knox. Ashlyn is joining us from the Fedora community where they are a community contributor. They were invited on by Marie Norton, who is fantastic, do go check out her podcast. And Ashlyn, it is great to have you here, calling in from Alberta, how are you doing today? Fantastic. How are you? I'm doing excellent. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much. Okay. So tell me what you do at Fedora. I do a lot of things. I wear quite a few hats. I am mostly with the Fedora websites and apps team where I do development side stuff. I do a lot of front end work, but I also work with the design team. And so I did some of the mock-ups there, some of the prototyping for the nav bar that we've been working on, as well as a bit of user testing. So I do some of those things. And previously I was involved in the diversity and inclusion scheme, which I haven't been as active in recently since I was so involved in the Fedora website's revamp process. Diversity and inclusion committees and teams take a lot of time and a lot of effort. How did you disentangle to work just on the one thing? Do you just say, I'll be back later? Or I'm just, I'm curious. Well, yeah, I wasn't like heavily involved. That was when I was first getting into Fedora. So I was just getting my feet wet at that time, doing small things like doc editing, being at meetings and kind of helping out there a little bit. So moving over to just focusing on dev work and design work wasn't a huge jarring change for anyone, I don't think. Yeah, I've seen some cases where that's not the case. So that's really great. You mentioned that you were just getting involved. You also just mentioned dev work and design work together. Would you consider yourself developer? Yep. Yeah, that's my main thing. I primarily do development in the past couple of years, mostly front-end side development with the Jamstack type architecture. Jamstack stands for Jekyll, uh, Angular, something? No, what is it? No, it's like JavaScript API markup. That's right. Didn't that come out of Netlify originally? Do you know? Yeah, they really made it popular a few years ago. And it, I think it's a really fantastic way to get just light sites made, you know. So tell me about this website that you built. So Fedora already had a website. Is this a total revamp? How many people were on the project? What was that process like? Yeah, this has been a pretty big project. The revamp initiative really started around two years ago with the design team doing a lot of the mock-ups and just starting to get the things rolling there, doing a lot of the outreach and work with the different additions teams. Because yeah, we're reimagining how we're showing what Fedora Linux is to the world. And it's been a long time coming since that type of process has happened. So let's see, we've got the design team that got started and worked with the council, worked with the different additions, started to pull together the content, figured out what things are going to start looking like. The Fedora websites and apps team was fairly new at this point too, just getting restarted as well because we've got the team revamp as well as the website revamp. So there's a lot of stuff getting going at the same time. 
So yeah, when that started up, that was a little over a year ago, myself and a few other folks that were on the more of the dev side of things, spent a lot of time deliberating on what our stack was going to be, how we were going to build. And I think anyone that's done this type of project knows that can be a very difficult conversation, but we worked through it and then we got things sorted out and started building. So that's been about, I think we've had a minimum, there's been three of us that have been consistently developing, but that's gone up to 10 different people that have been kind of coming in and out of the process because it is a community-led volunteer sort of thing. And that's kind of where we're at there. So Fedora is really good at having teams of volunteers, but it's also a very large community. I'm just always curious, where does the money for Fedora come from? And if it's not to the community teams, where does it go? A lot of the funding comes from Red Hat. And then yep. there's different, a bunch of sponsors. We're actually just working on a sponsorship page. So that'll be up soon. So it's mostly done that way. I'm not too close to how money gets handled in Fedora. So I wouldn't be able to answer too much on that side of things. That's okay. That's okay. Kind of leads into my next question, though, which is as a volunteer, how do you decide what's going to happen with the website? Like, who are the stakeholders that you have to take care of during that mm-hmm. process? Often at a normal company, it depends upon, say, management, right? Who wants to know what's happening with Fedora? I'm not sure that's the case. There's a couple of different stakeholders. The additions team members, so that's what we've mostly been working on is the Fedora additions. So the people that work on whatever the release is, that's one of our key stakeholders. The council, so like Matthew Miller, Ben Cotton, folks like that, Marine Norton, and she was in the role. Now Justin Flory, who's taken over the FK position. So those folks are also key stakeholders and we kind of negotiate between them. And then I think the third group is the maintainer side. So that's like folks that are going to be working on it. And this is a really big part of the revamp where it actually is having this stakeholder base. From what I understand about prior changes to the website and when they rebuilt it like this, looking at long-term how things are going to be maintained and whatnot, that wasn't as big of a part of the conversation. Whereas this time around, we really tried to engage with as many people as we could in the community. We did this with the discussions posts to figure out like how people were feeling on the stack choices that we're picking. So that was a really big thing. And then from there, there's also like the end users. And so that comes into us doing like some user testing, sort of pulling with the designs as they've been going on as well. So that's kind of how we've been engaging a lot of our different stakeholder groups between the additions maintainers, the council, the website maintainers, and then people actually navigating the sites. So as a Jamstack engineer, you're not just proficient in building the front end of things, but also kind of the back end, right? Jamstacks are super light sites where they don't have a huge node infrastructure or rails or anything in the back. It's just very basic. Here's some markdown, maybe some API calls. What was the scope of the design team and what was your scope as a designer within it? How did you decide where you were going to focus your time and efforts? If you have user studies and they're asking you for more features and you can implement those features as a developer. How do you draw a line in the sand saying, I'm going to do this and nothing else? I basically just put a part of my brain into a box and then I just run with the other part of it. But that's kind of what I do. I was doing a lot of the user testing. So I did the design for the nav bar. That was one of my main focuses, for instance. So I did the design and then I collaborated with another community member who together we did some UX testing and then 
we made changes to the design and set it, change the prototype. And then I switched gears again and did the initial development side of things. So yeah, it's just a lot of like, take a break, go do something else for a bit, and then let your mind get into that headspace. Code switching is a huge stressor. And that was a big learning process for me, actually, with how I work. I did smaller projects before that where I would do design and development and switch between those two roles interchangeably pretty quickly. And then when doing this was a really big learning about how I need to manage myself and how I'm thinking and how I'm thinking about solving various problems. And yeah, space is the biggest thing that I found for that. Can you tell me more about what you mean by space? Literal physical space, getting up and leaving the desk, going and doing something different. What I'll often do if when I'm able to, and I was able to do this a bit during this project, is when I have to be switching into more of a design side things. I would do things like watch RuPaul or shows that are very visual, stuff like that. Or I'd play video games where I'd be more interested in like engaging with an interface, you know, as opposed to building an interface. So I would do a lot of stuff like that. So I'm like consuming visual content and also engaging in content. And that's how I go that direction. The other side would be more, I would do like logic puzzles. I would go and just practice algorithms, solve some coding challenges or do some math problems, stuff like that. Watch like a little bit of what's that show with the hacker, Mr. Robot. I love that answer. When you think about this dichotomy, do you find that it's enforced through how your brain responds to stimuli? Or what are your thoughts on the idea that maybe it's the same processes happening at the same time? So earlier on, I figured I could use my brain the same way and just like switch between and for smaller paths, that wouldn't be a problem. But when I would have to get into visually solving really big questions, like one that I can think of right now is that when doing the nav bar, because right now there isn't like a unified nav bar across all of Fedora's websites and apps, but we have a lot of websites and apps. So I had the wall behind me completely covered in sticky notes that had all the different pages that I had to go through and come up with a grouping concept and figure out after doing that, logically figuring out how they were going to be organized and what the best design style was going to be to be able to solve that visual problem. So that was like a very structured way to approach a design problem, not a very creative process in the, the artistic sense. And almost more logical than it feels designy, but it was still a very like design process. So when I later on, I remember one particular day while doing that, I thought I could just bash through a bunch of that kind of work. And I sketched out a bunch of mock-ups and I think I went to go code some stuff for the footer or one of the pages. I can't remember exactly which now, but I went to go and do coding logic. And then my brain just sort of stopped. And I was like, oh, that's not going to happen right now. <laughs> so I don't think that I reinforce the dichotomy. It's just that and I think this is variable depending on how people think and individuals and their flow. But when I got to that particular problem, that's where I was like, no, we can't code switch here. Tell me a bit about your history. How did you end up becoming a coder slash designer? I mean, when I was a kid, I was really interested in code, but I came up in a very athletic family. So in the 90s, computers, you're in an athlete family, like computers are not a priority. And I became a live musician, actually, and a music teacher for a number of years. And that's what I was doing up until the pandemic, while also like exploring Linux, which I had gotten into at the end of university. And I started playing around in Emacs and just doing small code things again. And then with the pandemic and stuff, it's like, well, being a live musician isn't going to be very lucrative, is it? And 
along with like transitioning basically on stage. So I'm transgender and doing that in a bar scene that wasn't a very queer bar scene. Like things were just like changing in my life quite a bit. And I needed a new direction and computers seemed like a good way to go. It was something that interests me. And I really like the folks in Linux that I've been seeing in different Linux communities that I've been seeing creating content and stuff and the work that people have been doing. So I'm like, well, let's just try getting in on this action. What my plan at the time was that I've done some graphic design. I know a bit about computers, so I'll just kind of straddle this until I specialize and see where I fit in the best. And that's kind of how I approached it. I ended up taking a boot camp course. Yeah, it was fall 2021. So I did a web development boot camp. And then close to the shortly after finishing the course, it was four months that my prof asked me to work with him and be an instructor. So I've been teaching that course or parts of that course since then as well. So I just grew myself in feet first in a cannonball style. And now I'm a developer designer person. I like that. Tell me about some of your previous projects. How has it gone to design and build websites? Has it been easy to like find clients and... If so, did you find any in the open source world? Clients that I've had outside of my work with Fedora or right now, I'm doing a contract with Podman team with Red Hat and I'm rebuilding their websites at the moment. So I guess I got that contract through my work in Fedora. Also, I need to clarify with the Fedora work, it wasn't entirely unpaid. I worked on it with a Red, through a Red Hat internship for a while. And that was when we got the coding side of things really moving. That was kind of meant to be just someone keeping like a constant node. And then from there, they offered me an, a follow-up contract just to kind of make sure that there was someone on payroll on the project at all times while it was like in its earlier stages. So I've had a bit of paid work on this, unlike my colleagues. And yeah, so I need to give a shout out to everyone else that's been working on this project and not having gotten paid because... I did, and it was necessary, and there's so much great for me, but there's so much great work that people have done. Anyway, so back to clients. I've got a couple folks that I did stuff for locally. Like I was playing in a band, like we did weddings and things like that. And the website was very much designed by somebody who didn't have a strong background in design. And it got the job done, but we needed to boost things up. So, and I was trying looking to enhance those skills. So I took that as a way to an opportunity to kind of sharpen my skill sets and learn a bit about WordPress. And then from there, I was actually a skincare place, like getting some treatment done and chatting. And she needed someone, the technician and company owner needed somebody to work on another site for one of her other brands that she was launching. So I've been working with her on that. So a little bit of open source, a little bit of word of mouth is kind of how it's gone for me. All right. Shifting gears again. You mentioned code, you mentioned design, and you also mentioned another thing I would call a third part, although it is design, which is usability studies. Tell me more about usability studies for the Fedora revamp project and how that went. Yeah, that's something that I'm very excited about and very proud of, because from what I understand, speaking with Mo and other folks in the design side of things, there hasn't been a whole lot of this type of user testing, especially this early in the process. It was a big thing for me. It's something that I found very interesting when I was in school. So I remember reading Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug, which is an amazing book on usability studies. And I was looking at making the nav bar and it was actually that particular part. I was like, we need to do something about this. So I have no idea if this is going to work or be a total flop. I'm not doing this in my head. There's too many questions to be solving. So the first way we approached it was at Nest 2022. 
we ran a usability study right as a conference session. So we just got people to try playing with the mock-up or the prototype and we created some games for it. So basically we had Beefy, which is a really cute hot dog logo that Fedora has for a reason that's beyond me, but I think it's delightful. Uh, we hid Beefy and other characters on various pages and then gave prompts like, if you wanted to access the block page, what would you do? And then people would just find and use the prototype. And we basically tracked how many clicks it took people to get there, how many people like made mistakes, things like that. And we just sort of documented that. And we got some general feedback just from the comments that people were giving in the chat because people were watching this going on. We got comments as people were doing it. And we just took that information and adapted what the design's next phase was going to be. So this was really cool because, yeah, we were able to do something in real time. We were able to kind of get a few people's feet wet. We were able to introduce user testing like this to the community. And then we were able to follow up with another user test for the CMS that we've been configuring because we didn't have a front end for our data entry and data management. So yeah, we used at the time Netlify CMS and now Decap CMS. So we did a follow-up set of studies where we had and this is more less general focused, like what we did at Nest, but we got people that were going to be editing content. We got a few people that were in the team as well as not in the team. And by team, I mean websites and apps. And we got them to try editing and just maintaining some content in the CMS configuration that we did. And then we were able to kind of grow and evolve it and make it easier for people to use and contribute. Yeah, that was great because we did both of those things really early in the process. And we were able to catch a whole bunch of problems that we weren't able to identify because we were too familiar with what we were working on. How many people did you have in your earliest usability study? And where did you find them? Like, how did you announce that and get that going? To those ones, because it was very new for all of us, we kept it pretty insular. We announced it within the Fedora websites and apps in chat. So we got people from in there. We also cool. reached out to a couple of particular individuals that we noted as key stakeholders. Do you know why usability in the design process for open source projects seems so rare or just not done that much? It's hard to do. Okay. It takes time. The skill set to be able to run usability testing doesn't often, I think, overlap with the skill set needed to build a website or to design a website necessarily. And when you've got X amount of people contributing volunteer hours, doing an engagement session like that, that's a fair bit of work that goes into it. The other side, I think that there's some fear there. And I remember feeling this fear. I remember it very strongly when I had the nightmarish realization that the entire design concept for the first nav iteration was not going to work long-term and I had to start from scratch again. That fear, I think, might be an influence too. Hopefully I don't get roasted online too much for that. But yeah, like doing something where you're like, we might get a bunch of information where we're going to be told that everything that we've been doing is in the complete wrong direction. And we will have to deal with that feedback in a constructive way. I think that's a really big can of worms that a lot of people, when you look at the project, the amount of contributors, the timeline, it just might not feel that feasible. Tell me about the prototyping tools you used. We were using Penpot, which is a Figma alternative. How did that work with the usability studies? Did you design it there and then show people what was happening? Well, we built the prototypes and they got to use it. Cool. PenPod is awesome. We've had some of the PenPod people on this podcast, which is the best. So that was really fun. You've mentioned earlier to me that you were interested in having a close 
relationship between the dev and the design team. Can you talk about how that happened in this process? Yeah. So, well, that especially happened because I was kind of in a pretty central role for pushing this whole thing forward. And I was in both design and development spheres. So it just kind of operated as a strong node to bring the two together and just everyone wanted to do it. Everyone wanted to have more communication and connection. So between myself, Mo Duffy, and a few of the designers who wanted to learn a bit more about coding, and then some of the coders who wanted to have more engagement on the design process. Yeah, it just made sense to start being at each other's meetings and doing a little more chat between the two. Do you think that for design to work well in open source projects, you have to have people like you who can sit in both camps? I don't know if it's necessary, but it definitely helps. We also think that having a tighter connection between design folks and dev folks is basically the remedy to that fear that I was talking about, all those problems that happen that cause usability to be pushed too far to the end or to be able to be implemented in a non-nightmarish way. Yeah, so I think it's really important. It seems like Fedora is a very welcoming community. They spend a lot of time and effort trying to figure out how to get people in, including designers which is amazing. Justin Flora used to be one of the podcast hosts on this podcast. So definitely. Yep. He's probably helping there. Have you had any experience with open source communities that are less welcoming? Do you have any suggestions for how those communities could also be more inclusive of designers? I think that the acknowledgement of just speaking different languages needs to be made and people just kind of need to be okay with that and be okay with learning each other's languages a bit better. I yeah, like that. That's a huge thing because like I can speak both. I can speak dev and I can speak design. And when I'm working with developers, sometimes I'll bump into design language and then I can tell that like people's eyes, they're not quite catching. Just maybe starting to think, well, I don't know very much about design. So I don't know. You just basically what I think happens is you spark people the wrong way. Designers get intimidated when talking with developers when you're in a dev headspace and there's, there's ways that you think. Yeah. So I think there just needs to be a little bit of recognition of those differences and how they make each other stronger, which I think is a growing trend and just something that needs more work. I think it's the different languages that we speak. That's a big barrier. Do you think mentorship helps with that? Yeah. Mentorship is a huge thing. I think that a lot of this, just like having people that can be those bridges, bridge folks are great. Having mentors is also great. Between those two, I think you would have a really strong team that would be able to adapt to more usability testing, you'd be able to get more engagement between your designers and developers, less miscommunication and friction. And a lot of that happens from a mixture of good mentorship and having bridge people that can kind of mediate those worlds. Were you able to help mentor anyone recently as part of this project? I don't know if I did much mentoring. I did a lot of teaching. So we did some training sessions with the designers and this was kind of Part of that, because I really wanted to bring the design folks closer to the dev team and kind of dispel some of that being stressed about being understood or not sounding, I don't know, stupid or something like that when talking to a developer. So we did these hack fests where we did pair coding sessions and I just kind of guided them and gave like a little bit of info when necessary. But we would have two people who had less experience doing development work at we would be working in Vue.js and Next. That's the framework that we're using for our sites. And we would get them to build a button, make it interactive. And that would be the session. So they would pair code, go back and forth, roughly 10 minutes of coding versus navigating each. And then I would kind of just oversee that. So I did some work like that. And I 
hoping to lead that more into mentorship roles. But that's kind of where I'm at so far. Mentorship after we finish this launch is one of the next really big focuses. I was speaking with Justin a couple months ago, as well as the Fedora website Snaps team lead about having a stronger mentorship presence and figuring out some mentorship training and then being able to get that to happen with our more experienced devs, just so we have a stronger connection between the folks that rebuilt everything and the people that are going to be coming back, coming in, engaging. I like that. You mentioned teaching being different from mentorship. How is it different? Mentorship has a lot more to do with answering questions and guiding in the way, the approach to do something, whereas teaching is more answering like the how to do something. Got it. That makes sense. Where can people see this new launch? When is it out? Well, we're timing it with the Fedora 38 release, which I believe is the 18th. Last I heard, that's the date that we're aiming for that. But but yeah, the websites will be out around the same. It looks like we're running up on time. Can you tell me where people can learn more about you and your words on the internet? You can find me around the Fedora community and like the chats and stuff there. I kind of engage on social media, like Twitter and stuff, but mostly to like cute dog things. And people can go to fedoraproject.org. Ashlyn, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Don't leave yet. Now it's time for Spotlight. Spotlight is a part of the show where we highlight people, projects, or things which have helped us out in our career. Things we just want to have more light shed on them. My spotlight today is going to be Mrs. Rossop, my high school art teacher. Wherever you are, either heaven, hell, or nowhere, I assume for you it's probably nowhere. I hope you're in peace. You were an excellent art teacher. She was really great. She made me remember the Tigris and Euphrates rivers as the Mesopotamia is between two rivers by putting both her arms out and then shaking a lot. Never going to forget that image. Thank you, Mrs. Rossoff. Thank you for that. The best. And That's so cute. It was pretty great. And Ashlyn, what are your spotlights today? Two people that I'd like to do shout outs to. Yeah. Yeah, the first is going to be Tony Grimes at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. He's been amazing. He taught me so much about working in JavaScript and doing web development. Prior to that, I could do some simple Python scripts and stuff like that. And he really like opened me up to this world and gave me an amazing opportunity by bringing me on as a co-instructor, which was incredible. Not even technically graduated a program into then be teaching it. That was a lot of like trust and respect. And he does amazing things in our city for the tech community. And I just can't say enough good things about that guy. He's fabulous. And then I'd also like to say thank you and give a shout out to Maureen Duffy with the Fedora Project and Red Hat. She's the design team lead and she's been a mentor to me for as long as I've been working on this revamp. She's my supervisor. She's a friend. And there's just so much that I've learned just from us talking and chatting about designs that we're working on and problem solving like that. And she's just been a great support and anchor me throughout this whole process. So those people have been like the rocks that I've been able to stand and jump from. Thank you so much. Those are two wonderful people. It sounds like wonderful spotlights. I appreciate it. And it's been great having you on. Listeners, I hope you also enjoyed this show. If you want to check out any of the links, do check out the show notes. You can do that at sosdpodcast.org. We'll also have some social media stuff and all those sorts of things there. We also have a discourse on that same site where you can have comments and conversations about open source sustainability and design sustainability. 
We'll have a thread listed for this podcast. If you want to go ahead and comment, not many people do. You could be the first. If you have any thoughts, you could always email the host at sosdpodcast at sustainoss.org. That'll get to me. If you have any ideas for future guests or future topics, do let us know. Like this podcast wherever you have downloaded or heard it. If you could, I'd appreciate it. And again, thank you so much for listening. And Ashlyn, thank you so much for coming on. Best of luck. Hope the revamp goes really well. And yeah, just thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great to be on the show. And it's really cool to chat about the stuff with you today. 